Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have Dr. Jill Krista. Dr. Krista's hope is to improve your health through education and empowerment. Her goal is to bridge gaps in understanding between medical research and clinical practice. She writes books and offers online courses for anyone wanting to gain concrete steps to conquer environmental and neuroinflammatory conditions such as mold exposure, concussion, autoimmune encephalopathies, and Lyme disease. For over a decade, Dr. Krista was the director and practicing member of two integrative clinics offering naturopathic medicine, integrative medicine, acupuncture, chiropractic, physical therapy, craniosacral therapy, and massage. It was there that she witnessed the efficacy and synergy of a team approach to patient care. And she's now focusing on research, teaching, and writing, specializing in neuroinflammatory conditions such as mold sickness, brain injury, and autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, Dr. Krista, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's really cool to be on this that can so much focus on the tie that binds all of my interests, the neuroinflammation piece. So Yes, yes, yes. So let's talk... Maybe we can just kind of break that that concept down to the listeners. What is neuroinflammation? Yeah, so inflammation or agitation of the structures of the brain and the nervous system. There are lots of things that can cause that. And that's kind of, I realized that I have such seeming disparaging things or um, disparaging, (laughs) seemingly different things that I focus on. So Lyme disease, that's an infectious disease. Um, mold illness, that's an environmental situation. Autoimmune encephalitis, that's, a, that's an immune-related re- thing. And then brain injury, that's a trauma. How, what binds all of those things? And it is neuroinflammation because all of those things cause inflammation and then um, disordering of the structures of the brain and the nervous system. And then what are, what are some of the common uh, things that, that result in neuroinflammation, either whether it be illnesses or toxins, drugs? Just sure. To talk, oh, what, my goodness. What, what causes this? <laughs> yeah. I've been listening to your podcast. You know, it's so interesting that people say the brain drives everything. And that, that's so very true. The, the symptoms and the, the problems can be, it could be anything because it is the system that's driving your body. Um, so it can be anything from neurotransmitter changes. You might see mood changes because if there's a lot of inflammation, chemical formations can't be made the way they're supposed to if there wasn't inflammation in the way. So you can see anything that we would go to maybe a psychologist for. You can see anxiety, depression, um, mood changes, bipolar, all of those kind of things can happen when your brain is on fire or inflamed. The brain also drives a lot of our hormones. So you can see changes in all of the downstream hormones from thyroid to like in mold illness, we see a disruption of of a hormone that regulates your blood pressure and how much water you hold in your body. Um, So it could be anything in that hormone structure. So neurotransmitters, hormones, and then of course, running the systems of the immune system perceiving pain. You can get centrally mediated, upregulated pain, which basically means that a person with neuroinflammation is going to feel pain 
more intensely and more severely and possibly for a longer period of time than somebody that doesn't have neuroinflammation. So I think it really hits the gamut of all things. Even coordination can be thrown off. Got it. And so with, with kind of uh, your practice, what are, what are some of the common things that, that cause neuroinflammation? Yeah, so mold is one of the things that I've really been uh, focusing on ever since I wrote my book. Um, I was focusing on Lyme disease. I started practice as a naturopathic doctor, as a primary care doctor. You know, where I, the way I was trained is you could come see an MD, an ND, which is naturopathic doctor or an osteopathic doctor. Uh, you could see any of those people as your primary point of contact. Um, and you would choose the kind of doctor based on what your philosophical bent was. So if it was that you were wanting the pill, you didn't have time to deal with whatever lifestyle changes you would need to make, then you'd go see an MD possibly, although we are trained in all of that as well. Um, but if you're a person who's more like, I want to get to the bottom of this, what's going on? I don't want to be on drugs forever. Then you'd come see an naturopathic doctor. And I found myself in Southern Wisconsin, which ended up being a Lyme endemic area. We also have terrible heavy metal problems. And one of those that's particularly hard on the nervous system and the brain is mercury. Um, so I'm in a, in a town that had a GM plant. So there's plenty of mercury toxicity in that situation. So here I am looking at, you know, normal primary care practice and realizing that the people that weren't getting better had something else going on. So Lyme disease became one of my focuses, heavy metal toxicity, environmental illness, and I was working with them. There's a small set of people that just didn't seem to be getting better. And in one of those patients' homes, they found black mold. And I kind of knew it as a allergy problem, not really a neurological problem. But as I was studying for Lyme, I, which I thought was a joint problem, as I got into the research with that and getting more training, I realized this is a neurological problem. This is a bug that perturbs the, the neuro, neurological system. And it brings along friends that do the same thing like Bartonella and Babesia. So I started to really get more involved in neuroinflammation and neuro, neurological infection, um, uh, that interplay between the two of them. So then we add the mold, which is a biotoxin which is massively toxic to the nervous system. And it just started kind of putting the pieces together that, okay, mold can do this too. Oh my goodness, what can't affect the brain? And then we learned about the microbiome, which is now this new area of study. And we realized that maybe the bugs in our gut are driving our brain more than, more than our brain is driving the system. So yeah, I think that those are examples from my history that describe that there almost anything can affect how your brain is working because it works on electrolyte balances, neurotransmitter balances, microbiome, um, whether what your toxin load is, what your nutrient load is, what your glutathione status is, what your essential fatty acid status is, and all of those matter to how your brain functions. Awesome. So there is a lot uh, I want to get back to, but but first, let me let me just ask you. So, what 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 happens uh, kind of on a biochemical level when someone is say you know living or, or they're breathing you know moldy air? Um, what what is going on, and how does that result in this neuroinflammation we see? That's a great question. So we really have to understand what part about the mold is affecting the neurology, and it's these toxins that mold emits 
as part of a defensive mode. So mold is, is a problem because of multiple things. It's spores, so mold spores, obviously, we can react to and have allergies. Spore fragments are more like an asbestos thing where we can breathe them in and they can, they can lodge into the lung tissue and cause irritation, kind of like asbestos does. Um, and then there are these chemicals that mold makes as part of just normal, living, happy mold. It spits out, it's like factory smoke, you know, it's just spitting out chemicals, microbial VOCs, aldehydes, alcohols. I joke that, you know, if you're in a moldy building, you're, you can breathe air and get drunk because that's kind of what people start to feel. They feel a little bit like that, like the vision gets a little weird, a little incoordinated and blurry. Um, you can feel like you're, you're getting sleepy, your thinking is off, your neurological or your cognitive speed is a lot slower. And then there's these super toxic weapons of mold, which are called mycotoxins. These are the things that mold will make to compete with other mold spores to compete for territory. And we, it affects other living things as well. These chemicals are designed to kill. They're designed to kill that other microbe to um, make sure that it can't be anywhere near where that mold wants to set up shop. And we know this from um, like Louis Pasteur and the whole penicillin experiment. This is penicillium mud, uh, mold he was growing on bread, which was spitting out mycotoxins called penicillin, which we use to kill other microbes, antibiotics. So this is, these toxins are being spit out by the mold constantly um, if it feels threatened, if it feels like something else wants to come into the moldy environment. And in a water damage building situation, there's enough water and moisture that there will be other spores that want to come in and set up shop. So it becomes a very competitive environment. Those toxins are neurotoxins. Some can cross the blood brain barrier, which is a barrier you've talked about a lot. So I'm sure your listeners know what the blood brain barrier is. Some of them can just cross right through that barrier. And by the mere presence of that toxin, they can cause inflammation, local inflammation. Um, they can also affect how the cell excretes waste products, so the, the astrocytes and the neurons, that they can't take in the nutrients they need and they can't get rid of the waste that they need to get rid of. And it can affect the lymphatics, which is the glymphatics, which is how our brain cleans itself. It drains itself. That can become so inflamed that the brain can't unload, so to speak. So um, I was going to ask you, as far as what, uh, what do we see with like brain imaging studies or, or with brain imaging in terms of the impact of mold? Because I know there's, there's now a specific like, type of MRI called neuroquant that like specifically looks at the sort of volumetric changes that occur in the brain when, when people are exposed to, to kind of chronic mold um, illness. So what do, we, yeah. what do we see there? Um, and I've learned most of this from Dr. Mary Ackerley. There, there really aren't any studies that are saying, if this finding, then it's mold. But she's you know, reviewed like over a thousand different brain scans, neuroquant, MRIs, and that were related to mold exposed people that were having changes such as dementia, anxiety, um, personality disorders, that kind of thing. All of those things can happen when you've been exposed to mold because of the changes and the areas of the brain that, that light up, so to speak. So um, one of the areas that we see that she is teaching us about 
is all related to the fear. So the amygdala is a big area that gets inflamed. And you can actually see on the neuroquant inflammation. So on a neuroquant T-bar, which is train triage brain atrophy report, you can see changes of either there's a lack of volume, which would be more connected to dementia, that we would sort of assume that's going to be more of a dementia picture. Whereas with mold exposure, you're going to see increase in volume, which we perceive as inflammation. Now we don't have brain biopsies to, con you know, no studies have been done to like correlate that this is what the neuroquant is showing. So this is what the, the biopsy confirms, but um, it is pretty consistent with what we see in other tissues that are similar, that we're seeing more inflammation when you've been exposed to mold and mycotoxins. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I guess that's a, that's a concept familiar to anyone who's ever stubbed their toe or sprained their ankle that it, that's right. it swells up bigger. So it, it would make sense that the, the brain would do the same thing, even though you can't physically see it unless you do one of these sort of uh, imaging studies. Right. Right. Yeah. So we'll see a lot of people that end up with a limbic dysregulation or, uh, you know, a looping, the cell danger response, this looping of fear, 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 because of the area that these mycotoxins can, can get to in the brain and what it's triggering in the body, or, you know, of, or, or the brain thought process is, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. That's a very useful thing if you can see what's causing the problem. But with a hidden aerated toxin, that messaging, while accurate, doesn't make any sense to the person. So it can become a very confusing situation. Right. I wanted to ask you, so if you could explain, so the, the, how, how mold kind of affects the, the limbic system, because it's a really interesting thing to me that, I mean, a lot of people, especially people who aren't, you know, in, you don't know about mold, who aren't in the, the research, would find it quite bizarre that this sort of the, the air that you're breathing could actually dramatically change your personality and change your your basic responses to fear like that's fascinating to me yeah it's super fascinating and disturbing you know and disturbing. <laughs> yeah so some of these that can cross the blood-brain barrier so um chetoglobusin is from a mold called ketomium and this is one of them that grows on it can grow on cement. It can grow in places that have a lot of water. So like in a refrigerator filter, um, all kinds of crazy things. I've been testing everything. I just test as much as I can <laughs> test because I get curious about, well, that's a really watery loving mold. And this is a water vessel. We should test it and see what happens. So yeah, there actually can be this mold. Now, whether it's growing the mycotoxin that crosses the blood brain barrier is a whole other deal, but just merely breathing in that chetoglobusin, which is a mycotoxin from mold from specific species, it can ride the olfactory bulb, get into the cerebellum and into the frontal lobe. And I actually had a patient with a 12 year history of exposure to black mold that they weren't aware of. It was after a remodel and the contractor and the remediators guesstimated about how long it had been a longstanding problem. They found that he ended up having melanoma, which I think is also connected to certain kinds of mold exposure, like black mold, black cancer, kind of makes sense. Um, but he had 
always ended up on the wrong side of the statistics with his cancer story. And it was a long, it was over 10 years. He ended up having a melanoma um, uh, metastasis and it went to exactly those two places, frontal lobe and cerebellum. And it was just like, okay, what is this? What's this connection? I got into the research and there's very little human research on mold and mycotoxins. There's human research on mold spores, but not really on the mycotoxins. That's mostly animal research. And in the animal research, I found that that chetoglobosin can, can travel the olfactory bulb into those two spaces. And it just, it made so much sense for why, why is metastasis even went to the brain? You know, I mean, there's so many, so many things that, that clicked for me. So that's how you can connect personality disorder with mold exposure, because the inhalation part of those mycotoxins, they're ultra, ultra small, they're fat soluble. So they're going to go the fattiest tissues in our body, which we all know our brain is just fat. <laughs> our gut lining is fat. Our brain is fat. If you're lucky, you have a fat head. You know, if you're lucky, you have a good, juicy, fat brain because that's protective to the brain. That helps all those circuit, all the circuitry work. Um, one thing we see with that, then if you inhale these mycotoxins and the inflammation follows, the watery part of the inflammation starts to um, butt out some of the good structural fats that we need in the brain. So you see actually a, a nutrient change in the brain structure. So now you have location, you have inflammation, and you have a nutrient um, shift in areas of the brain that drive personality. And that happens in the cerebellum as well. Um, and we're seeing that it's the fear response or reaction to that. I shouldn't say fear response. I should say localized reaction to being poisoned <laughs> that can then get into a loop in the, in the amygdala. And we don't really know why, even if somebody doesn't have um, mycotoxins that we know across the blood brain barrier, even just being exposed to those mycotoxins. And we, we're not sure if it's a cytokine response that triggers microglia activation. We don't really know yet what's going on with that, but we do know that people that are inhaling or have absorbed through their skin, um, mycotoxins, which can get through our skin. Cause again, they're fat soluble that the, the limbic system, the whole amygdala can be triggered to, to fire. I'm not, you know, get out, get out, get out, get out. Or you don't know that's what it's saying, but it's saying, you know, we're not safe. We're not safe. And so it gets into a pattern. So we've discussed, so the, the amygdala, the limbic system, what, what other areas of the brain are, are affected by mold? So when we were talking before about the whole microbiome connection and how the microbiome is really that we make 70% ish something, you know, about three quarters of our neurotransmitters we make in our gut. And so if you, one of the things we know about these mycotoxins is that they also affect gut function and microbiome balance. And that it's really microbiome balance, but that affects the whole, the whole microbiome in your gut. So you can actually get more excitatory neurotransmitters and less production of calming neurotransmitters like serotonin and GABA being produced and manufactured. So now you have a body that's running on more excitatory neurotransmitters. And so you, I have seen in my practice, even before I was specializing in mold, 
almost every patient that had a mold exposure had some level of anxiousness. And I'm really careful not to say anxiety because it didn't necessarily have to be to the level of anxiety disorder, but an internal sense of restlessness, sleep issues, you know, and I'm thinking, well, it makes sense now that I understand they don't, they're not manufacturing GABA, they're manufacturing excitatory glutamate and things like that to tell the body to ramp up and get, you know, get out of the danger, but it's not a tiger. So they don't know why they feel that way. Right. So it's, it's not that anything in the physical environment has necessarily changed. It's just the chemical, the, the chemical balance in the brain is now altered and that's reflected, reflected on the person's experience of the world, basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it can be very internal. You know, people will maybe look as a lot of, you know, mental illness, they look fine on the outside, but you know, on the inside, they're just suffering with this restlessness. And for some people, it, it starts as being very productive. They can be really productive, almost like a mania kind of thing. You know, like they can use that anxiousness. Well, it must be this. And if I could just get this done on my list and this done on my list, and maybe I'll sleep tonight. And eventually it becomes because of the toxin is still being breathed in, it becomes something that um, is almost pathological. Hmm. So we talked about uh, as far as as far as how mold can damage the brain. What we know from you know with neuroplasticity, the the brain can both change you know in in bad ways as we've talked about with with mold exposure, but the brain is also capable of of healing itself. We know that from from neuroplasticity. So how uh, what what do you do as far as uh, being a clinician, being a doctor when someone comes to you dealing with an issue like this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, just to speak to what you had said, we we understand that the brain is very wise in how it protects itself. And Dr. Bredesen, Dr. Dale Bredesen, is doing the research on um, connecting mold exposure with Alzheimer's calling it inhalational Alzheimer's. This is Alzheimer's type three related to other biotoxins as well, but specifically mold. And they're finding that it's possible the tau proteins that are related to those neurofibrillary tangles that we see with Alzheimer's, those tau proteins end up being a very good sponge to mop up mycotoxins. So are they a cause or are they an effect? And that's one of the things that, you know, he's bringing out into this world is that maybe targeting those proteins is actually not doing the brain any favors, maybe working on things. And, you know, he has a whole functional approach working on things to get the mycotoxins out of the body is a better approach because if that's the cause of this inhalational Alzheimer's or the, the cause of their dementia, now we're really getting to treat the cause. And it's because of the, the faith and trust that he has in the brain and that I've been trained, those proteins have a possibility to dissolve or be reassigned. The brain is very efficient. It's a use it or lose it area. So, you know, if you can, through neurofeedback and through different things, if you can train the brain that, um, you know, this is the pathway we want to be using, but you have to give it what it needs. So my um, little rhyme that... My, um, my environmental medicine instructor, Dr. Walter Crinian, drilled into my head is the solution to pollution is dilution. So if you have a bunch of pollution that has made it into the brain tissue, and it could even be cytokines, 
you know, it could be inflammatory molecules, but let's say it's toxin, mycotoxins, being that they're fat soluble and they love to soak into the fattiest tissue, it makes sense that they would go to the brain and the nervous system. So the solution of pollution is dilution. If you're dealing with a lipid soluble toxin, you need to dilute with lipids with good. I, I have an alliteration for this that, so I can keep it in my head. Copious, clean, correct fats. So lots and lots of clean, so organic, of the correct kind of fats. So things that are going to be feeding the brain. Its favorite food and structural fat is DHA, which is a fish oil, dihexanoic acid, dicosahexanoic acid, there it is. DHA, it's from fish. And that's a great way to start that process of diluting and diluting and diluting. Getting someone's sleep regulated is super important because that's when the brain drains. 90% of the brain cleaning itself happens when we sleep. So sleep is a very big focus for my practice. If somebody can't sleep, I even use some, some measures like cranial sacral therapy or things that can get them into that alpha state, frequency-specific microcurrent, things that we can get there to give the brain an opportunity to try to clean itself out. And then modulating inflammation in the body. And we know one of the best things to do that from the animal studies that are specifically related to mycotoxin exposure is bioflavonoids. That's the colorful pigment in, in veggies. I like to go more veggie than fruit, but yeah. Tell me more about that, the, yeah, the bioflavonoids. Yeah. It was so interesting when I, I was... Um, after I started treating a lot of mold patients, you know, when you got kind of get known in the Lyme world as doing that, then that's what you get a lot of patients. And then when it was like, oh my gosh, a lot of these Lyme patients that aren't getting better have mold. So a lot of them came to me and I started to feel a little overwhelmed, got into the research and realized that, you know, as I'm digging through each mycotoxin that I was doing a deep dive on, every mycotoxin has its own specific way that we detoxify it in the body. They're all very structurally diverse. Um, and every color of the rainbow is effective for some mold somewhere. And that just kind of, you know, and usually most mycotoxins need three or four color bands. Um, so we know this now, um, animal research was done to save animals because they were having an entire flock of, is it a flock of turkeys? I don't know. Whatever it is of turkeys. <laughs> Sounds right to me. The whole group died and it was because they were feeding them moldy food and they would die of like intestinal hemorrhage and really horrible deaths. And they realized if they added things like DHA um, and then a host of different bioflavonoids to their feed, that they could still feed them moderately moldy food, but the, the bird would survive. So rather than feeding them better food, <laughs> they did the research to figure out how can we continue to feed them possibly moldy food, which is an interesting concept. Um, but, you know, so the every color, whether it's that deep purple of resveratrol, folinic acid, which is the green, um, lycopene, which is red, beta carotene, astaxanthin, every color, quercetin is a huge winner for mold. That's a yellow, it's almost like neon yellow. It comes from the skin of onions. That's one of the best places to get quercetin. Every color band that there is in the rainbow has efficacy to help you manage the inflammation from mycotoxin exposure, which is super cool. 
Right on. So, so speaking of food, I know there's, I know this is somewhat uh, controversial. What, what's your opinion on, on the effects the, of moldy food, like on, on health, such as I know like in coffee or corn, uh, different other sort of crops, is there, is it substantiated that that could really cause a significant problem or, cause I know there's, there's other people who say, oh, the, the level of it is so minuscule that it's not really having an impact on human health. What's yeah. your opinion on that? Well, I mean, my opinion is really based on data and, and it is that we do find some mycotoxin in, in food fed to humans. So this isn't just an animal problem. Um, how much of that matters is such an individual thing based on the person. So I'm in individualized medicine, which is very hard to, for researchers and frustrating because then you're looking at population statistics. We do see, for, there was a study out of University of Wisconsin, my alma mater, and they saw um, mold mycotoxins in cereals, definitely coffee, um, chocolate, apples and it was and peanuts and it was kind of like okay that's a perfect breakfast right there you know peanut butter toast <laughs> have a little coffee and some apple juice okay we just had our mycotoxin load for the day the big question is how much of that is um are have we adapted around i mean i have this sort of theory that we're a little bit mycotoxin obligate that our bodies have evolved eating some food with a little bit of funk on it. You know, that's not, we haven't always had the opportunity to eat, you know, the King's food, that kind of idea. But I think there's an amount of it where it becomes a problem. And you're, if you've been exposed to a water damaged building, that amount becomes smaller and smaller and smaller because now you are loaded and loaded and loaded with other inhalable toxin and having it through your diet then makes you more susceptible. So switching gears a little bit, what can you tell me about uh, uh, VIP? So for those people, the listeners, that's vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, I believe. And I, I had read a few, a couple interesting papers, I believe, published by uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker, who's one of the kind of, I don't know if you'd call him like grandfather of mold. Grandfather yeah. <laughs> of mold. So yeah. what can you, what can you tell those papers really intrigued me because he was basically looking at this wide uh, series of different parameters as far as from, from hormones to vitamin levels um, and that all were kind of corrected or normalized from this VIP treatment. What, uh, what can you tell me just, can, can you just briefly kind of introduce VIP to the listeners and then kind of give me uh, your, your take on it? I am not shoemaker trained. So I'm a, I'm very differently trained. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I came up through the ranks of like Dr. Walter Crinian and people like that that are coming from a naturopathic viewpoint. So I don't know a lot about VIP. Um, so I wish I could answer that question. I know that there are, there are a lot of people that are shoemaker trained that use it. There's sort of a timing, um, that's involved with VIP. You don't want to be giving it if somebody is still actively exposed to mold. That's about all I know. And so, <laughs> um, that might be better for a shoemaker trained doc. Right on. Okay. Well, what other, what other kind of, uh, tools or, or, uh, uh, kind of therapies 
you, you, I think you had mentioned like craniosacral. I know um, like uh, saunas and just kind of sweating out the toxins is a big thing. What, what can you tell me about different uh, other different sort of therapies? Yeah, one of them I really like is frequency-specific microcurrent. And this is basically the concept that every cell in our body has its own unique beat or frequency, that it functions the best or the most healthfully under that frequency. And when you have an impact to the body, such as a trauma, um, a toxin, an infection, um, or nutritional changes, you know, malnutrition or excessive nutrition of certain things you shouldn't be eating, um, those cells can then become their beat gets off, they get dysregulated. And so it's really, it's back down to those, um, which is where neurology shines in these micro frequencies that are not really detectable to our hands, but we can see them on like an EEG or something like that. So uh, I would love to do a study with somebody doing either, you know, a QEG or something like that and giving frequency specific microcurrent, because I just see people, whatever their issue is just melts in front of our eyes with this. And there's a lot of art to picking the right frequency because you have to pick, you have to kind of understand as you're looking at the person and their symptoms, what part of their physiology is really tweaked the most? What's the presenting layer right now? And in what way? Is it an excess or a deficiency? Is it an inflammation or a, you know, a toxin? Or is it too many minerals or too little minerals? And so there, there becomes an art to picking the right frequency. Um, but I've found that the things that address um, the medulla, the amygdala, things that address the brain are incredibly useful for mold toxicity. And it just helps to reset that we're not safe. We're not safe. We're not safe. People have to realize when the body, when the brain is t targeting that, there's all these other physiological systems that get put on hold because you got to run from the tiger. So, you know, hormone systems don't, don't work in the regular way. People have fertility issues, digestion gets put on hold, all kinds of things. So you can see gastroparesis where the gut isn't really moving the way it's supposed to through peristalsis. So if the body is feeling it's not safe and that trigger is happening, some of the things we're trying to do to treat somebody in their organs of detoxification or detox with a sauna, we don't see the responses to that if the body is constantly triggering that it's not safe. So to make sure that I understand you correctly, so with the, the frequency-specific microcurrent, the idea being that, that mold might sort of disrupt the kind of healthy normal frequencies that the body is is operating under and could be resulting in some of the problems so that when you kind of give someone the proper frequencies and you kind of correct uh, the abnormalities then then other things can kind of fall into place mm -hmm. is that is that mm -hmm. a correct sort of way of looking at it yep yeah i mean so that you still have to eat right and get sleep and move your body and all those things. It's not like the microcurrent is the one and only treatment that you need to do. And you can continue to do everything else, you know, the same. Um, but it is something that moves things along very quickly. And my other favorite tool is cholagogs. And these are, I know a lot of people I've are like, oh, what, what? <laughs> I have a bunch of them sitting right behind me. Um, so cholagogs are plants that 
induce or induce either the, the production and or the movement of bile. And bile is one of those fluids that is so underappreciated in medicine. I mean, people don't connect bile with brain function, but I do. <laughs> and we should, because we see that, again, this is with mold, it's a toxin-based condition and also immune with the spore reaction. But the most of my patients, it's a, it's a toxin-based situation. And when the whole system in the body that detoxifies fat soluble toxins is the biliary system. So if we're going to be diluting out of the brain, it has to go somewhere to get detoxified from the body. And one of the biggest organs of detoxification that gets rid of these mycotoxins is the liver. And it uses bile to bind it up in little micelles and carry it into the lumen and the intestine to be pooped out basically. Well, if you have been exposed to a lot of toxin, the bile starts to get sludgy and it doesn't flow. And bile has so many important um, roles in our neurology. If you have good quality bile, there's been studies that show that bile helps with correction of neurodegeneration, just bile, bile flow. They can actually give it as a bile salt and as a drug um, to try to... um, see what happens with the changes in the brain. They also see reduced prion formation. If you have your bile moving, they were using, they were of course injecting animals with it, but they saw reduced prion conversion. So it's just like, okay, there's something there with again, that gut brain connection. And I think the fluid that is the gut brain connection, we know the vagus nerve is the, is the, the tract or the, the um, structure but the fluid that connects that, in my opinion, is bile. Interesting. That, that definitely seems like an underappreciated part of, of just, I mean, when we, we talk about neurology or uh, neurophysiology, bile is not, I mean, that's not a, talked about. Not talked I know. about at all, right? <laughs> I know. I know. And it has all these non detox things that it does. It's a component of the retina of our eye, it's a component of surfactant in our lungs. Um, so it's just that, again, I'm thinking about the brain's like reptilian brain function is safety and eating. And, you know, um, those are all parts of that eyeballs to get safe, you know, to get to find where to go to get to safety, um, lungs to be able to expand so you can breathe, so you can run to safety. I mean, it's all this reptilian stuff and it's just so it's so old fashioned, but it's so deeply effective to get bile flowing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Crystal, what, uh, what sort of stuff in the future, what, what sort of future research or, or directions of, of your practice kind of excite you the most? Or like, where, where do you see, where do you see this stuff going in, in five, 10 years? Yeah. Uh, oh, I th- I'm so excited about neuroinflammation and what we have for, and I hope that all of us doing our little siloed kind of things, I hope that we can come to a place where we're all sharing and get a truly integrative approach. I mean, I have years and years of experience doing that and the patients, they, they just thrived, you know, that having a meeting once a week where we say, okay, what's your take on what's going on with this person? What's your take on what's going on with this person? And coming to a nice collaborative place, that really excites me. And I think there's a whole generation, I see it in my children, that has a mind toward 
collaboration, you know, like a, um, rather than competition. And I think that's a really solid and exciting thing. And my next projects are connecting all the ways that mold is affecting the body. So I'm working right now on a practitioner training course. I have one for mold, um, but a practitioner training course on pandas and pans because the whole combination of Lyme, Bartonella and mold really sets up a child for having the autoimmune reaction in the brain. Got it. Well, Dr. Krista, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Uh, I really enjoyed having you on uh, today to talk about all of this stuff. Uh, it's a unique Thanks. topic for, for a lot of the listeners um, who probably haven't heard of this stuff before. Um, if people want to find out more about your work uh, or the book uh, that you wrote, Break the Mold, Five Tools to Conquer Mold and Take Back Your Health, uh, where, where would you direct people to? Sure, they can go to drkrista.com. That's D-R-C-R-I-S-T-A.com. And if you're listening and you're thinking, huh, I wonder if mold, you know, I have a little anxiousness. I wonder if mold is affecting me. You can go to moldquiz.com. And there's a little quiz there. You don't have to read all the stuff. You can just answer the questions. But if you are curious, there's a lot of information as you go through the quiz about the various things that mold is doing and, and how it's doing that. Right on. Yeah. Well, Dr. Krista, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, for our listeners who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are Roscoe's Wetsuit. You can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else audio podcasts are available. Also, go ahead and check out Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast.com for all of the above, uh, all of the previously mentioned stuff. Dr. Krista, again, uh, I really appreciate your time today and enjoyed our uh, discussion. Thank you. I did too.